Okay, we are live back on the Edlo podcast. Subscribe, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you should subscribe. I am here with an expert in self-defense, use of force, and firearms, Skylar Robertson. Hello, Mr. Robertson. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, what do I call you? Do I call you Mr. Robertson, Officer Robertson, Expert Robertson? Do you have a preference? Skyler's fine. All right. Well, Skyler, so um, you have a vast history, 30 years of military and law enforcement experience. You've worked as a security contractor overseas. Um, you've worked for the State Department, you've worked as a deputy sheriff, um, and now you serve as an expert in use of force cases. Um, and I know you've written a ton of articles on firearms use. I know you, you have your concealed carry. Um, you know, why, tell me why someone should, just a random listener of my podcast, should care about what you do in self-defense? Well, in most of the concealed carry classes or in handgun classes, you might take at a shooting range. They teach you how to shoot, but they don't necessarily teach you when to shoot and when not to Mm -hmm. shoot. Mm -hmm. And seeing people on YouTube clips or on news reports that, are doing things they think they're right but they're actually committing felonies with what they're doing it's like mm. you're gonna go to jail right and you just see it straight I, up go, say, go ahead there was a case here in the portland area a guy named michael strickland um he was a reporter covering some riots and protests that were going on he was surrounded and I think he was right to pull his gun, but what he did was he scanned the crowd. So he was pointing his gun at people who were not necessarily a threat. To him. And that's what he ended up getting uh, charged with. Hmm. Yeah, Skyler, I'm, I'm losing you again. I think we have some connectivity issues. Remember about, yeah, a uh, little bit, I think. Um, but if you remember a couple years ago at one of the protests where they came through a gated community and there was a couple standing there, um, he had a rifle and the wife had a handgun. She was gesturing and pointing with the gun and it's like you can't do that to people Mm -hmm. if you're unless you're legally authorized because of someone's behavior unless they're clearly a threat to you you can't point a gun at them which she Mm -hmm. was doing she she's pointing you know swinging her her gun pointing it around the crowd and she could have been charged with account for every person she pointed it at. Man. So um, you, you, you do a lot of work. Well, let, let's go back and talk about your background for a second. So 
you know, tell us what you, your, your time in the military, where did you start? How did, how did that go? Did I lose you again? You there? Oh, you're gonna have to say that again. We were frozen for a second. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 we're having some connectivity issues here. Let me let me uh, let me ask it again. Uh, talk to me about um, your military background. You served in the military. Uh, maybe you can walk us through kind of your 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 CV, I guess. Okay, I did uh, 28 years in the military. 25 in the infantry, three as a medic. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Prior to deploying to Afghanistan, I was teaching what's called Guardian Angel, which is a not quite a Secret Service close protection course, but it's similar. So soldiers would escort civilian contractors to different locations most of the time they were teaching the Iraq or the Afghan military. Mm. And so I was teaching soldiers how to protect people that they were escorting. I see. And, and then, then you, you moved after on that, from I got that. into contracting. Yes. Uh, I did, um, on a department of defense contract, we were working with the special mission wing in Afghanistan. Um, the Afghan commandos. So we were protecting the people that were teaching them how to fly their aircraft and how to fix their aircraft. And nice. after okay. that, I moved on to the State Department where I was uh, in Iraq protecting diplomats. Wow. Wow. So you've got a You've got a long, long history with firearms, firearms youth, use protecting people. Um, and then as part of your, we were talking off air, you had some, you had some time as a, as a contractor for an undisclosed uh, government, uh, branch of the government. Um, and I guess that's one of those things you can't talk about. Not until about 2075. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's, right. I work for the U.S. government overseas. That's all I can say. Wow. Yeah. So when it comes out in 2075 that Skylar Robertson fought with the men in black, we uh, will know that he was on the Edlow podcast uh, long before that. So, um, no. Uh, so so you have an extensive background with this. And and it, it sounds like you are often hired by uh, criminal defense attorneys to defend or to act as an expert witness in cases of self-defense. And it seems, you know, to the layperson, I bet they're wondering, why would you need an expert in self-defense in these cases? Perhaps you can talk about why uh, your work is so important to the justice system or the legal system, if you would. Um. Most of what I do is is I read all the police reports and then I determine myself if I think it was a legitimate self-defense or, you know, sometimes it's not. Sometimes attorneys contact me and it's like, your client's guilty of this charge. Mm. But if I think there's 
innocent, if I think it was a legitimate self-defense, most of what I do is explain it to the jury. Um, of course, about 90% of the cases never make it to trial because they'll plead out. A lot of times, um, if it's a very clear-cut case of self-defense, once the district attorney sees my report, a lot of times they'll end up dropping it down to a minor misdemeanor for time served. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, in, in doing your work, what percentage of the cases that come your way do you think you actually take? About two thirds. Okay. Okay. So, so most of the ones you come through, cause I know I read in one of your articles that you said that you, you only take cases if you believe the person acted right. Correct. I'm so, yeah, I don't want to help a guilty person go free. If I mm -hmm. think and there, there was one, uh, about a year ago, the public defender in Southern Oregon sent me all the case material. And as I'm looking at it, I'm like, your client is guilty of first degree murder, hands down. Mm. And they said, well, can't you find some mitigating circumstances or some reason why this was uh, self-defense? I go, no. He had an argument with the guy. He left, got a gun, came back and shot the guy on video. Right. That's not self-defense. That's murder. Right. Well, and I think that that's, that's super helpful as, as an attorney who often deals with experts, you know, some there's, there's lots of stuff on TV and stuff like that of, of these guys. I remember watching an episode of Boston legal where, you know, William Shatner's character looks at the guy and says, look, I have this $10,000 check and it's going to go to somebody who tells me X, Y, and Z. And then the guy's up on the stand saying whatever, you know, he wants him to say. And I'm not saying that doesn't necessarily happen, but I know as an attorney myself, I appreciate an expert's candor like that because, you know, it helps me understand. Like I do, I do civil work and personal injury. If a doctor comes to me and says, yeah, I can't relate this to the car accident, that helps me in knowing, okay, I got to resolve the case. I'm not going to be able to meet my burden. And it sounds like what, you know, what you're, and also I don't want my experts to ever be in a position where they're essentially perjuring them, purging themselves or doing something that they're not, that they don't believe in just for money. So I think it's probably helps you in your expert work because then when you do take a case, the other side knows this is legit. Absolutely. And if I did ever perjure myself by saying, oh yeah, this is completely, you know, if I thought it was murder, but I got up on the stand and said, oh no, this was self-defense and that ever came out, I would be done as an expert witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, it, that's true. Yeah. It's just like, you know, when I was a police officer, they said, if you ever get caught lying, you're done because every case you've ever worked is going to be up for review. And every few, every district attorney, there's what's known as the Brady list in law enforcement. It's a list kept by the district attorney's office of police officers that are known to have been untruthful in the official performance of their duties. And it's a death sentence if you're a cop because you're never going to make another arrest or even write a speeding ticket again. Mm. 
so so let's talk about I, I know that I have a lot of listeners who are gun owners and there might be some uh, listeners who you know are, are not a big fan of guns and this isn't necessarily a, a political podcast but uh, in that way but I want to know you know if you have a gun and you're using it to protect you know your your family or your property or something or, or protect yourself what are some things that people do, um, mistakes that they make that hurt their self-defense claim, let's say before and even after uh, they have to use their gun? Uh, the number one thing is getting involved in a verbal back and forth with someone, trading barbs, trading insults, and then it escalates to where the other person starts a fight and it's like, okay, now I'm going to pull my gun. We'll wait. But when that gets to court, it's going to be, wait a minute. You were trading insults with that person. You know, you were mutually participating in this. So mm-hmm. that's mutual combat, not self-defense. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the old dueling laws. When two people engage in a fight or a duel, if one kills the other, One goes to the morgue, the other goes to jail. Mm. So if you're, if you trade insults with someone and then it escalates, it doesn't completely destroy your self-defense claim, but it erodes it a lot. Mm. And another thing people do is um, they don't understand when you can pull the trigger. And, you know, our laws in in the U.S. were a patchwork of 50 state laws, territorial laws, federal laws, county laws, city ordinances. So, but most of the time, here's what will will work in a self-defense case. There are three elements that all have to be present. Well, first... Deadly force is only justified when faced with the immediate, otherwise unavoidable threat of death or serious bodily injury. And serious bodily injury is a legal term, but for the layman, just think crippling injury, loss of use of limb, eyesight, etc. So three elements that have to all be present are ability, opportunity, and intent. Sometimes intent is called jeopardy so the other person has to have the ability the physical ability to cause you death or crippling injury and so they need a knife a gun some other type of contact weapon or if what we've seen in a lot of home invasions or riots just mass numbers of people you know, I don't care how big you are, how tough you are, what your experience in martial arts is. If you're fighting five people at once, you're at a disadvantage. Yeah, it's a problem. So they <laughs> yeah. have the ability to harm you. They also need the opportunity. With opportunity, think distance and obstacles. Yeah. Okay. Let me. Someone, can I? Can I stop? Can I stop yeah. you right there, real quick? So. It sounds to me then like if you're talking about the ability, that is 
is that subjective enough? Like, for example, let's say home invasion, woman, giant man. That's a different ability than, say, if, like, I'm six foot seven, right? If some five foot eight guy comes up to me at a bar and pushes me, that doesn't necessarily mean ability, right? Does it- right. What you're discussing there is disparity of force. So okay. if someone, let's say an elderly person who's using a walker, is attacked by a 25 year old male in good physical shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's easy for a jury to understand. You know, you can see the victim in the courtroom. They can understand, look, this person's got a walker. They've got severe um, physical problems where if they get punched in the head, knocked to the ground, you know, an elderly person who suffers a fall, like if someone punches them and they fall to the ground, they've got a 70% chance of dying from that injury within a year. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something you can show to a jury, you can demonstrate, you can look at the statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, now, someone, let's say some, you know, you're in a coffee shop just having a cup of coffee, minding your own business somebody walks in and punches you you can't pull even if they're a martial artist you can't pull your gun and shoot them at that point right right because they don't have the ability now if they knock you to the ground and then they continue the attack that's a different story Mm. because you no longer have the ability to roll with the punches or the kicks. Um, a lot of legal cases, they mentioned the shod foot as a weapon. Mm. So if you're on the ground, you can have ruptured organs, um, a kick to the head while you're in a seated position. You know, you're, right. you can't really move. So all that, energy gets transferred to your spine right right so they're very fluid situations so you might go from hey this guy just punched me in the head you put your hands up you're like hey man i don't want to fight i don't want to fight then he knocks knocks you to the ground yeah that's a different story then as as you're talking about this i keep thinking about the you know and this may be a politically charged comment but the uh, the George Zimmerman case, you know, the one that happened oh, yeah. out in Florida, because he was on the ground, and from all the at least from all the evidence I've seen, I didn't follow it closely, but I do know that Trayvon Martin was on top of him, and witnesses were describing him doing things in like a ground and pound MMA position on top of him, uh, and, and I think and I and think he had a self defense claim, and, right, and grabbing his head and slamming it into the ground, right, right. So those all went into the ability and opportunity portion of a self-defense claim correct and also remember the photographs they showed of trayvon martin were when he was like 13 years old right huge difference from what he looked like the day of the attack right i understood that too i i heard that that his um that he was uh that he was basically they they described him as a man i mean he was built like a like an adult male at that time yeah i mean he was what eight seventeen eighteen at the time of the attack he was about six foot 
I can't remember how much he weighed, but it's like, this is not a small child. This is an adult. Right. So, so you talked about ability opportunity. And then what was that third element? Intent. Ah, okay. So they have to actually intend or you have to perceive the intent that they're trying to hurt you. And the standard that's going to be brought up in court is would a reasonable person who knew everything you knew and only what you knew at the time you pulled the trigger, would they conclude that the other person was intending to use their ability to hurt you? Mm. So if somebody is, you're in a cafe, you're a coffee shop, and somebody has a gun holstered, they're just eating their chicken fried steak, not bothering anybody. They're not showing intent. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's, you have to be able to explain it to a jury. And fortunately, most jurors are competent in being able to sniff out the BS. Mm. And so, they're able to go, yeah, that when faced with that, um, yeah, it was reasonable. Yeah. So, so looking into that, then going back to um, what you were saying, you know, earlier about the, the argument, um, what are, are you saying then, it, you know, if you have an exchange of insults and do those things, are you saying if that happens, you'd be better to not pull your weapon? Or are you saying, like, what, what would you say someone in that circumstance, you're in a, I don't know, for some reason, anytime I go to a bar, at six foot seven, if I'm there about midnight, there's somebody, I'm the biggest guy in the room and somebody gets liquid courage and wants to fight, right? So like, let's say yeah. that someone, someone comes in and they want to fight, they want to mess with you and you, you want to defend yourself. Tell me what you think the best course of action is in that situation is if you start, if you start arguing with somebody, are you saying you probably don't want to pull your gun out? You know what I mean? Or are you saying, hey, you know, if he starts mouthing off, just pull your gun out and end it before you have the word of words? I mean, what are you trying to, what do you say the best thing is there? The best thing is to avoid the conflict. Mm. You win 100% of the, fo- of the fights you avoid. Yeah. And if someone starts messing up with you, you know, say, hey, man, you know, get your hands up like this showing empty Mm -hmm. hands. That's kind of the universal sign for, I don't want to fight you Mm -hmm. and say, look, if I, if I offended you, I'm sorry, I apologize. Let Mm -hmm. me buy you a beer. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's one gun writer by the name of Masada Ayub. He's been a police officer, expert witness. He's written thousands of articles on use of force. In one of his books, he talks about carrying a $20 bill wrapped around a book of matches with a rubber band holding it in place. Mm-hmm. So he can say, here, you and the boys go have a couple beers on me. Hmm. And that's better. That costs you 20 bucks mm-hmm. rather than a year or two in jail awaiting trial. Ten to twenty thousand dollars in legal fees. You know, a year or two of missed wages. Mm-hmm. A legitimate self-defense claim is going to. The only thing worse 
than having to face the legal system would be getting killed. Mm-hmm. So you have yeah. to think of it like that. You cannot protect your ego. You can mm-hmm. protect your life, but you, you know, no matter what insult someone throws at you, you can't pull your gun. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because I bet in those moments, I mean, I'm guilty, I'm guilty of it too. You know, that, that long-term thinking is so essential because you're sitting there and this guy wants to try it and you're just, you know, you don't think about, you get, you get a little heated. You stop thinking about all of those things. You stop thinking about, yeah. So even if I successfully win my self-defense claim, I am going to jail for a time. I'm going to have to pay bail. I'm going to have to pay for a defense. And you, you brought up something in one of your articles that I really want to address here that I don't think a lot of people understand. Public defenders. Tell me about the difference between a public defender and a, a legitimate criminal defense attorney. I, mean, I don't want to say legitimate, but I mean a private criminal defense attorney. It was very common when I was a deputy on the days I had to go to court, you see both the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, the public defenders bringing in a, you know, wheeling in on a cart boxes for their cases. They dig through them and pull out whatever case is getting called next, flip through it real quick and go, okay, what am I pleading? Like what, what case is this? Mm -hmm. In some cases, they don't read all the reports. They don't, they're just so overworked. Yeah. The inmates, when I work in the jail, used to call them public pleaders because they are going to, their job is to get you the least amount of time possible. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if you're facing 20 years and they negotiate it down to three for a career yeah. criminal, that's a good deal for an average citizen. Three years is catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, criminal the the public defenders I think personally are the most altruistic, nicest, like to the core people who legitimately believe what they are doing is a service to the community uh, and to the underprivileged. The problem is what you said; they are so overworked, and in in a lot of the places yeah. that they work, a lot of the places that they are, they have less funding than the than the DA's office. And yep. they, they're getting paid very little money for what they do and they love it, but they just can't keep up with, with everything that's going on. And that's a good point. What you brought up about money, the district attorney's office has essentially an unlimited budget to call in experts, call in witnesses. They can spend as much time as they need to prepare their case. And if they think if there's something going on, you know what, we've got a witness here. That's going to be a problem. I don't think we can take this to court next week. They can just essentially put the case on hold for six months and refile later when they think they've got a better opportunity to win. And most of the time, my experience with district attorney's offices, They want a conviction on something. Their number one strategy is to make you go broke trying to fight the charges. Mm. When you spent, um, I mean, I, 
you can easily spend a hundred thousand dollars on a self-defense case. Wow. Yeah. Um, which is why I use self-defense insurance. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, you can get, you can get self-defense insurance. Yes. I go through, um, the U S concealed carry association. So I'm not going to say the amount, but I can spend about four times what my house is worth hmm. on my defense. They'll pay for the bail. They'll pay for attorneys. They'll pay wow. the legal expenses and they'll also cover what comes after the criminal case, which is the civil case, hmm. because no matter how big of a dirt bag someone is, if you shoot someone, relatives that he has never seen before will appear crying in front of the cameras wanting a payday. Because mm-hmm. they'll look at that and they'll go, okay, who can we sue? Oh, this guy's got a house? Yeah, we can take his house from him. And mm-hmm. we all know lawyers, not to say every lawyer is this way, but <laughs> thank you. We've thank all, you. For that. <laughs> yeah, we've all seen the lawyers that'll go, oh, your second cousin kicked the guy's door in, killed his dog, beat up his girlfriend, and then got shot. Oh yeah, we can totally sue that guy. Yeah, you know, I, I comment on that. What, what I'll say is, that I I get that. You know, I'm a I'm an in, a personal injury and wrongful death attorney. I represent plaintiffs, and we get a bad rap quite a bit. And the reason we get that is often there's a lot of uh, you know guys out there who. You know they're sole practitioners and they're they're hungry you know what i mean they yeah. they want they got to take their cases and so they'll take the case and try to get whatever they can because they need to keep their doors open and so i'm luckily yeah, they gotta in a pay spot their rent. they got to pay their car their car insurance right and i luckily yeah. i'm in a spot in a, in a firm uh and I've, and I've done well enough for myself that that's not me i can pick and choose the cases that i need but but there are those people out there and so yeah, these cases that we talked a little bit about what you can do prior to a, a, an incident. What about, let's say you've had to use your, you've had to use deadly force to protect yourself, your family. What are some mistakes people make after a shooting event that uh, affects their self-defense claim? Um, not calling 911 right away. Mm. Again, that was with Michael Strickland in Portland, one of the things they got him on was he went and gave an interview to a TV station after the incident before 911 was called. Oh, jeez. <laughs> now, if you've never been, like, seen a police data terminal or mm-hmm. worked with law enforcement, if you call 911 and you're talking to that dispatcher, you don't say, I just shot someone. You say, I was attacked. Mm. I'm at this location. I was attacked. I need police and medical. Mm. There's my attacker is on the ground unconscious. Well, what happened to them? I'll tell the police that when they get there. Mm. But you want your name to appear as the victim. So when that cop gets the call comes in, most of the time it's just going to appear on their terminal. Hey, oh, we had a shooting in. Oh, who's the victim? while Skylar Robertson is the victim. Mm -hmm. So when they show up, they're already thinking of you as the victim. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Why do you think that's so important? I mean, it, police are supposed to be objective, right? They are, but a lot of times it's they're making subjective opinions about, you know, everybody lies to the cops. Mm. Everybody. So you go into a situation, you know, a domestic violence, a burglary, you know, a harassment case. Everybody is lying to you and you've got to sort out who's lying and who's not. But what you don't want to have happen, let's say someone's trying to break into your house, you scare them off with your gun. Okay. They kick your door in, they see you holding the gun, they take off and leave. They call 911 and they tell the cops, hey, this guy pulled a gun on me. I went up, knocked on his door, the door opened, and he pulled a gun on me and said he was going to blow my head off. So it's going to come through. He's the victim. You're the suspect. Mm. Mm -hmm. So call 911 right away. Don't say you shot someone. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm because that's an admission Mm. when the police show up say this guy tried to kill me i want him arrested Mm. they're going to say well what happened you know know, how did he get shot officer i will explain i will cooperate fully with your investigation after i've spoken with my attorney Mm. and then stop talking there is going to be a time to get your side of the story out there. That time is not while your attacker is bleeding out on, on your front walkway. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you've never been, there's a reason police are trained on how to write a report, how to take, how to observe a stressful situation where someone may have just been trying to kill them. And they have to write what happened to justify what they did. If you're not a cop, you've never had that training. Mm. And you might, you know, the, you know, this guy attacked me and I shot him. Okay, well, what did he do? Well, maybe in your head you're thinking, you know, he picked up that brick that's sitting there and he walked across my lawn across, and stepped onto my flower bed, raised the brick up over his head, and said he was going to kill me but your adrenaline's up you're rattled and you go well he walked across my flower bed and i shot him right. oh okay right talk to your lawyer first mm-hmm. um a basic strategy of police what i was taught to do is lock someone into a story mm. you know take us just what happened and write down everything they say because mm-hmm. most of the time they're lying to you. And if you can prove that they lied, the more their story differentiates from the physical evidence, the guiltier they look. Yeah. You know, and also I want to ask you about that because that's that's something, you know, memory is, a, is an interesting part of witness um, statements because when the adrenaline is going, uh, especially in a situation where you feel your life was legitimately, legitimately in danger, like you said, there's... He, he may have come across the flower bed with a brick and raised it over his head like he's going to smash you. 
But if you're in shock, you just simply don't remember all those details. And so right. what you're so what you're you're saying, even though you're saying it and they're locking you in, that's not really what happened. But a year from now, when your statement gets read to the jury, you know, the de district attorney is going to say, well, here's this police report. Can you read the highlighted? You know, Mr. Robertson told me this guy walked across my flower bed and I shot him. Right. And then the, and the next question is going to be, and wouldn't you agree, sir, that your memory on the day of the incident is better than your memory here today? And you, what are you going to say? <laughs> right. You're going to say no. Right. I mean, it happened five minutes before they got there. Right. And so. Right. And you're then, is that what you told the police? Well, yeah, but. You know, or it's on body cam footage. So there's that video and audio recording of you saying what you said. Right. So right. if you deviate from that, well, now you're a liar. Yeah. And they can impeach you with your prior inconsistent statement. And the thing that's that's interesting about that, too, is I, I tell my clients all the time when they when they give me that, like we, we deal with medical records all the time. Right. And people uh, like, for example, if somebody has a a case where they have neck and back pain, but their neck pain's worse than their back pain, you know, they go in and they report their neck pain, but they don't report the back because it didn't hurt as bad that day. And then they come in and they go, yeah, but, and I explain to them, I go, yeah, listen, maybe, maybe the record didn't catch the back pain, but the problem is, is that the more we're explaining in the courtroom, the more we're losing, right? And so if you're having to say, well, yeah, right. but that's not really what happened, you're already you're already losing a little bit if you're if you're explaining while you're there. Exactly. And yeah. so, so so you're uh, better uh, off. Uh, oh, go ahead. You're better ahead. off talking with an attorney before you ever talk to the police. Most people don't realize this, especially detectives. If the police ever tell you, well, can you come to the station, make a statement? They they are one police are allowed to lie to you. It's called tactical deception. Mm -hmm. The police can say, you know, the guy that attacked you, we want to charge him. We need you as a witness against him. So we want to go over your statement. Okay, cool. And you think, great, these guys are on my side. No, they're not. Mm -hmm. When anytime detectives say, can you come make a statement? Once they get you in that interview room and they call it an interview rather than an interrogation, but it is an interrogation, mm -hmm. their job is to keep you talking until you say enough that they can charge you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That interview is not going to end until either they can charge you with something or you say, I want to speak to an attorney. Wait, Don't it might be, tell them. It might be good. Say, Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, don't say, well, can I speak to a lawyer? Should I speak to a lawyer? You have to say, I want an attorney and then mm -hmm. stop talking. Yeah. You know, uh, it's important, I think, at this point to mention you and you said it earlier, but you actually served as a as a deputy sheriff for five years. Right. Yes. And so, um, you know, I think it's important for people to hear as we're talking about this, that you're not anti-police. No, uh, not at um, all. Yeah, but but you uh, but 
what we're talking about here, and I think that people don't understand this. I, I did a little stint in the district attorney's office while I was in law school, and it blew my mind. Like, for example, I don't know how many times someone got pulled over for, I don't know, a speeding, like they're speeding, right? They get pulled over, and then, you know, they go, hey, can we search your car? And they're like, yeah. And they find a bunch of drugs. And I was like, well, why'd you tell them you could search your car? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they're like, I didn't know I couldn't. You know? And it's just like, yeah, what do you mean you didn't know you couldn't? Like, people, th- what we're talking about here is you have rights. Uh, you know? Yes. There are constitutional rights specifically designed because police officers are a member of the, ex- of the executive branch that is <laughs> enforcing law. And you have a right to not talk to them, to not help in self self criminalize um, and those things. And all we're doing here is talking about that. So why perhaps you can explain why it is so important for someone to ask for an attorney right away in these cases? Um, Because anything you say will be used against you. Um, There's federal rule of evidence 801. Most people have never heard of it. I never heard of it until I was doing research for work as an expert witness. Um, Everyone's heard the Miranda warning, right? Mm -hmm. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Okay. But if anything you say to the police can be used to help you, it's inadmissible. It's hearsay. Mm -hmm. So a more accurate Miranda warning or advisement would be anything you say can be used against you. Nothing you say can be used to help you. Mm-hmm. That paints it in a more realistic light. Mm-hmm. And you could be completely factual, but what you tell the police, because they might have a witness that, you know, you could have been, one example I saw in a lecture, this attorney saying, look, you could be 40 miles away at your grandma's house when this crime happened. Let's say, it was, you know, a gas station robbery. But there's somebody that knows you, you know, somebody you went to high school with that says, well, I saw him, you know, two blocks away at the time. They could be completely wrong, but sincere in their belief. So now what do the police have? They've got an independent eyewitness saying, I saw him two blocks away at the time of this robbery. And you're saying you were 40 miles away? Nah, you're lying. And that is probable cause to arrest you. Wow, yeah. It, so, so having an attorney helps, because it, in my understanding, if you have an attorney, he is allowed to ask for all the evidence they have against you. So they can see all those things and they can't, I mean, they could lie to your attorney, but it's the attorney would be able to help you in that situation. Correct. And in a lot of the cases I am brought in on, the only evidence they have to charge the, the defendant is their statements. Mm-hmm. So that's why you don't say, I shot this person. Because mm-hmm. you're giving them probable cause because most people don't know um, 
uh, God, what's the term? It's when it's an affirmative defense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Self-defense mm-hmm. is an affirmative defense. Right. Okay. So you're saying I did this, but I was right. right. And in a self-defense case, you're saying, yes, I shot and killed this person, but I was justified. The judge will advise the jury, look, if you find that this guy was that the defendant's statements are true, you must let him go. Mm-hmm. They'll come, they'll almost say you would be wrong if you didn't shoot the person. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that coin is if they don't find that you were completely justified, you just admitted to shooting someone. That's fully admissible. Right. And like I said a few minutes ago, you're better off giving your statement to the police with your attorney present rather than at the scene. Right. Because... Or or it's also, and as you said even before that, it's even better to avoid the conflict completely if you can. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And if you ever get... Uh, asked by a, by the feds to give a statement, bring your attorney. Mm. And mm. most people don't realize this. Lying, like you can lie to the cops all day long. Lying to the feds is a felony. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what Martha Stewart went to jail for. It wasn't for insider mm. trading. It was for lying about insider trading. Well, I know we all felt a little bit safer when Martha Stewart finally met met yeah. justice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you're talking about an attorney for self-defense, is there something specific you're looking for in a criminal defense attorney specifically for a self-defense defense? Yes. You want an attorney who knows how to defend the innocent. Mm-hmm. Most criminal defense attorneys defend criminals. Mm. They're defending people who honestly did it. And the first thing they do is go to mitigating circumstances. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've seen public defenders do this over and over where they go, well, can you, um, they want to claim mitigating factors. It's like, no, I just had one where by the letter of the law, the defendant was not guilty of anything. The defense attorney wanted to go, well, he had some injuries, he was provoked. It's like, no, you're going for mitigating circumstances. In a self-defense case, your claim is not mitigation, it's it's not, well, I did it, but I shouldn't be punished as hard. Your defense has to be, I was completely justified in what I did. Mm-hmm. You have to own it. You have to own it. You yeah. can't say the gun just went off. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that's, when people say that, right, because you don't want to, 
it's a traumatic thing. You don't want to say, I shot and killed this person. Hmm. Well, he was coming at me and the gun just went off. Okay, so if it's not intentional murder, they've got you for a negligent homicide. Mm-hmm. And in the state of Oregon, a negligent, a criminally negligent homicide is first degree murder. Really? Yeah. Wow. It, it, it's, yeah, it's one of the, uh, it's one of the, and so anything you say to the police, you know, it can't be the gun just went off. It was an accident. You ha- like you said, you have to own it. Your defense has to be, I was right. This person attacked me. He threatened me with, with lethal force. And he was trying to kill me. And I shot and killed him. And I was right. Um, but yeah, defense attorneys that go for mitigation. Most criminal defense attorneys defend the guilty. And yeah. if your client is facing 20 years and you get him two or three years, that's a win. Yeah. Yeah. To a career criminal going to prison for a year or two, that's just the cost of doing business. Right. But for a regular person that goes to jail for two years, you're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose every bit of a state you've built up for your, for your family and your kids, your retirement. You're going to lose all of it. Yeah. No, that's so true. Perhaps, defense- perhaps, perhaps you can show, you can give us a, a story or, or two of, some real egregious cases where, you know, if you had the wrong attorney, you know, the guy would have spent a lot of time, but but having you on it and a good attorney kind of helped him out. Um, well, one that I had is actually the first case that I was hired to, to be an expert witness on. It was a shooting that happened in Portland, Oregon. Um, a couple of guys were hanging out in the parking lot. They were getting some custom t-shirts made. Another car pulls, drives down, the driver slows down, sticks a gun out the window and starts shooting. The defendant pulled, when he saw the gun, he crouched behind the engine block, drew his gun. When the driver of the car fired his fourth round, the defendant fired his first. And he fired three or four rounds and the other car took off. The, um, that spring in Portland, there were a lot of unsolved gang-related shootings. And the mayor was getting hammered with it very regularly. So the police knew the defendant, they knew his identity the day of the shooting. Three weeks later, they arrested him. 
and they charged him with attempted first degree murder, unlawful use of a firearm. And the, when I got all the evidence, I read the police report, I read the arrest affidavit, and then I watched the surveillance video from the parking lot. And it's the same video that the detective used to write his arrest warrant affidavit. I completely missed the shooting because I was looking for what the detective wrote down happened and it just wasn't there. He invented, he put in what would be necessary to get a conviction. But um, one of the things he said was this was a crowded, you know, this was during rush hour when thousands of people are, you know, going home. He said cars had to slam on their brakes to avoid being hit by gunfire. Hmm. If you watch the video, there were no pedestrians, no bicycles, and only and no cars stopped. There were only two moving cars, the suspect vehicle and another car that was on the opposite side of the suspect vehicle. Hmm. But this detective said in his report that these two men made eye contact, they stared each other down, and the defendant walked behind and took up a position behind the engine block of the car. He was very calm. Like this was something he was expecting and was prepared to handle. And if you look at the video of that clip, you saw the defend the back of the defendant's head for about two seconds. Hmm. It's like there is, I would have loved to have gotten that cop on the stand and said, what training do you have as a police officer that led you to be able to tell the state of this guy's mind from a two-second clip of the back of his head? Mm-hmm. Now, in any of your law enforcement classes, did you take? Did they cover that? No. Okay, so you have no training in that. What about experience? Have you ever been in... You know, do you have any cases where you had to see that? Well, no. Okay, so you have no training nor experience to be able to make that judgment call. Um, in that case, the good thing is the defendant had been in jail for about eight months at that point. His father talked to an attorney he knew who happened to be the top trial lawyer in the state of Oregon. And when... I submitted my report to the defense lawyer who then submitted it to the DA's office. They offered him a deal for time served and um, it was something like disorderly conduct. You plead guilty to disorderly conduct, you'll get time served and do three years to unsupervised probation and then it'll be expunged because there's no way they could get that cop on the stand. There was another case um, that happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A guy's in a bar and grill having dinner with his girlfriend. 
somebody walks up to him and punches him in the head completely unprovoked hmm. and starts punching him they're rolling around on the floor the guy who got punched the defendant had a concealed gun and they start struggling over it the gun goes off hits hit the attacker in the arm okay police show up right 911 calls go out police show up two cops pulled up at the same time one was a patrol sergeant who had spent his entire career on the streets the other was an administrative lieutenant who had never worked as a patrol officer the sergeant tells the lieutenant we've got other units 30 seconds behind us we need to wait for them the lieutenant says no this is an active shooter we need to go in now the lieutenant turns off his body cam goes into the bar or into the restaurant sees the defendant with his gun in his hand down at his side not you know it's pointed at the floor the lieutenant starts shooting wounds the defendant but he also hits a woman who's standing behind the defendant and kills her. Oh, okay. wow. They charged the defendant with felony murder. Because the and officer shot another a bystander. Because the officer shot a bystander. And felony now, murder essentially means that someone got murdered. You may have not killed somebody, but you were in the commission of a felony when someone was murdered and so therefore you're at, you are charged with murder essentially right and it could be let's say you know you and i went into a rob a 7-eleven and the clerk shoots and kills me you get charged for my murder right right and when they sent me all the charging documents i'm looking at them now this attorney he was a crusader he thought that the he'd been trying for over 20 years to get the felony murder statute ruled as unconstitutional cruel and unusual punishment he just didn't think that should be on the books which if that's what you want to do fine campaign for that you know become a legislature legislator get that law overturned if you don't like it what he did he wanted me to say that as a police officer, I felt the felony murder statute was wrong and therefore basically jury nullification. You know, don't convict mm. this guy. But as I'm looking at what he's charged with, he was only charged with felony murder. And in mm. the statute, it says if anybody convicts or is convicted of any of these crimes like burglary robbery arson sexual assault extortion robbery um, if you are convicted of one of those crimes and someone is killed in the commission then it's felony murder but he wasn't charged with any other crimes the only charge was the felony murder charge it's like he can't be convicted of that yeah, he can't be convicted of that unless he's convicted of the underlying felony first, <laughs> right? Right, and there was no underlying felony. I think the DA was trying to give this guy a break, saying, okay, look, we'll charge him with felony murder, but not anything else. A competent attorney should be able to get this guy off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a couple weeks, he'll file that, you know, 
this charge is is flawed it can't be there's no legal way to convict him on this and they'll just dismiss the whole thing this lawyer didn't want to do that mm-hmm. he was so bent on proving that felony murder was wrong that that law should be struck that before it went to trial the guy took a plea deal for 36 years wow oh man God. Uh, yeah it's he was innocent he was completely innocent of the charge i had another one that went to trial about two months ago where i felt it was legitimate self-defense um if you read the statutes for the state of oregon for uh justifiable homicide he was covered because part of the statute says if you are faced with a first degree assault which is deadly a deadly force assault not necessarily one that's going to kill you but one that might cripple you mm-hmm. which in this case it was it was no question mm-hmm. the attorney didn't want to do that she wanted to argue for um, mitigating circumstances out the gate he was acquitted of second degree murder but convicted of first degree assault and got hmm. a 10-year sentence wow and he should have gone home hmm. man so and, so these are examples of why you need to have a good attorney who's willing to make a self-defense claim and understands how to how to defend with a self-defense claim yes if if you go you have to go to an attorney that knows how to defend the innocent Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. may not be a self-defense attorney and you don't have to stick with the same attorney if if you're making a self-defense claim and you're looking at what you're charged with and you're looking at the self-defense statutes and you go yeah i was perfectly justified in what i did but your attorney is talking about plea deals they want to mitigate they go hey you know we think we can you know go get you instead of getting the second degree murder charge we could probably get you a first degree assault charge Mm -hmm. so instead of looking at life you're looking at 10 years Mm -hmm fire your attorney Mm. you know I had there was one case from a couple about two two and a half years ago where the original attorney wanted to make a plea deal and the defendant goes he was a corrections officer and he goes no if I take any plea deal I lose my job I lose my pension and he took it he fired that attorney got a new one we went to court and he won Hmm. wow but his other attorney didn't want to put in the time to go to trial she just wanted hey we'll plead this out and you know hey you can get a year or two instead of you know 10 or 20 years that's another thing that I think is super important when you're talking about attorneys is you need someone who has trial experience 
you need someone who's actually done it because you know we we see that here in, in, in what we do as well um a lot of guys will or or attorneys rather doesn't even have to be a guy females too they they just want to settle the case out get their 30 their their third or whatever their contingency fee is and move on with the case because it takes so long they got to shut down their practice to go and try the case and so they'd rather get the money that they know they can get instead of trying it and a lot of the times that's not in your best interest you know it's in your best and yeah. and i have seen i don't know if it, i i think it's the same in in a in a criminal case but i know in the civil case often if the defense sees like i'm on the prosecution part but if the defense sees that you are actually willing to go and try the case often the offers get better you know exactly if, if, and so um, and, and I'm not saying they're just pushing it forward without actually doing the work to get ready for trial, but they're actually willing to do the work to get ready. Like they're actually going to go try the case. I don't, I've had a few cases where on the courtroom steps, you know, yep. it, it resolves, uh, for a number that, that matters. So. And I've seen my experience work in the criminal side, both as an expert witness and as a deputy is if a lot of times if the case is weak the da is hoping to make a deal because mm -hmm. they know i've seen them the night before trial you know jury selection starts eight o'clock in the morning in 12 hours hey uh yeah we're gonna drop the charges hmm. it's like well wait a wow. second you know a couple days ago you were satisfied with sending this guy to prison for 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. Now you're dropping the charges. Mm -hmm. And another thing I've seen and experienced is a lot of times people in the district attorney's office don't review all the evidence and they don't read all the police reports until just before trial. Mm -hmm. And I've seen cases. There was one, it was an inmate who he was an old man who had dementia. I don't think he ever should have been charged with anything in the first place, mm -hmm. but he threw a pot of hot water at his wife. Cops show up. Well, that's domestic violence. By law, we have to arrest him. And they should have just taken him to a hospital. Mm -hmm. But, um, And I wrote, because I had some dealings with him where, like, this guy was clearly not in his right mind. I don't know how explicit you want me to get for what sure. this guy was doing. Um, he was sure. eating his own feces. Oh, wow. Wow. And I put that in my report. And an ADA calls me and wants to talk about you know, would you be satisfied with probation or because he ended up assaulting me in the jail mm -hmm. and I didn't charge him, but I wrote it up and put it as an informational in with his mm -hmm. case. And I'm like, I asked this woman, I'm like, have you actually read my report? Well, mm -hmm. no. Yeah. The dude doesn't need to go to jail. He just needs to go to the hospital. He needs mm -hmm. mental help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and yeah, again, prosecutors are just as overworked as defense attorneys. It's 100%. Yeah, 100%. they don't read the cases until just before trial.
Well, and the thing, think that I think the thing that is important for listeners, and and the reason why we're having this discussion, there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this and being like, oh well, you know, if they, you know, we're talking about cases where the guys were probably guilty or the bad guy, you know, he was a bad guy too, and blah 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 blah. Everybody says that until you're the one in the interview room, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then, and you know, in and, and you think, well, that would never happen to me. It does. It does. Yes. It happens to, it can happen to anybody. And so. most of the cases I have worked as an expert witness for the defense, the only evidence they had against the defendant was their own statements. Mm. And wow. I had one um, older guy, mid to late 60s. Um, shot his stepson who was in his 40s because the stepson had schizophrenia he used meth alcohol weed to try to control his schizophrenia and he attacked his mother and said he was going to kill her he's like i'm just going to kill everybody and the defense attorney said well is it possible that well the defense or the prosecuting attorney's theory which he gave to the grand jury was he says it happened in the kitchen but the evidence is going to show that it happened outside in the yard he had already got him out of the house when he shot him hmm. and that's where the grand jury goes oh okay hmm. And so they agreed to prosecute, but the defense, the detective that was on scene, the two police officers on scene and the crime scene techs all said the evidence shows that the shooting happened in the kitchen. Hmm. But the DA's theory was this elderly man who never finished high school stay in a couple of minutes before the police arrived, staged the crime scene in such a way that it fooled the experts. Hmm. <laughs> and what they, what the DA said to the grand jury was in this man's interview with the detectives, he changed his story and he admitted that it took place outside. Hmm. Now, the interview. The shooting happened about 1130 at night. The interview happened six o'clock in the morning. Okay. Mm. This is an elderly man that's been awake for more than 24 hours. Mm. And when you read the transcripts of the interview, which the interview lasted almost two hours, but he kept his responses got shorter and shorter and he's just going, huh? what yeah i guess hmm. just not even paying attention to what they're saying to him sure they finally asked him well is it possible you know is this possible that the shooting actually took place in the backyard and you don't remember it is it possible you just don't remember because i guess that's possible hmm. congratulations you're under arrest for attempted murder wow jeez and yeah so so tell so, me now tell me now 
what so let's say i mean i don't know you're you're in your house you you're a gun owner you hear you know you hear uh you hear a a, a clatter <laughs> and uh somebody uh somebody's in your house um you know what do you think you what do, what do you do um hopefully you have a plan for this sort of situation that you've worked out with your family and you enact that plan um in my family we use the keyword alamo mm. so if they hear me yell out in the middle of the night alamo that means i'm holding up a defensive position in the hallway everybody else gets into the master bedroom while my wife's calling 911 and hitting the alarm mm. and once I've done a head count and everybody's in there. I go in, shut the door and lock it. Hmm. I'm not going to go searching for someone in my house. Hmm. And hmm. I have been trained to do that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I've been trained in the military, trained in the State Department. I've been trained to do one man room clearances. Hmm which is the most technically difficult way to clear a house. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I've been trained to do it. I would never do it as a civilian mm -hmm. unless I heard a family member in distress. Mm -hmm. So that's the only time I'm going to go looking for trouble mm -hmm. is when, okay, if I hear my granddaughter screaming in the far part of the house, okay, now I got to go. But so, other than that, I'm going to hold fast in a room and wait and because I've got homeowners insurance, right? There's nothing in my house that they can steal or break. That's worth me getting hurt over. Right. Right. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit from, from home. And I think that's really a great idea. So you, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm, I own guns. I'll, I have uh, several and, uh, but I don't have a plan. So that's actually something really helpful. Um, and I think it's important to think about that. I mean, you're a military man, you're trained to go after a guy yeah. and you're like, nah, not going to do it. You know? And I've been trained to do rescues of diplomats. Mm -hmm. Um, essentially by myself, if there's, if we're a quick reaction force, if things go really, really bad and I end up as the last person, especially on the last job I can't talk about, we were doing what's called low profile mm -hmm. work where you don't look like you're a security guard or a protective officer. Mm -hmm. um, so you were not out there with 20, 30 guys or even, you know, it just may be you driving one person they go to meet with someone it goes south now you got to go rescue them mm. that's a complete that's a whole discipline on how to do that mm. if you've never been trained you could be walking into all kinds of trouble mm. Mm. and there's nothing in your house worth your life yeah that's other than point. your family yeah so, you know, we hear a lot about, um, 
you know, they call them mass shootings and things of that nature. Someone walks into an office building, starts shooting people up, or walks into a school. Um, if you're a person uh, with a gun, uh, you know, in one of those circumstances, you know, is it is it kind of the same thing? Like you're you're really just clearing people to get them away versus going after a guy with a gun. You know, you hear this thing. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, yeah. you know, um, so so tell me in those circumstances, what do you think someone with a gun should do? If I'm with my family, my family is who I'm trying to protect. Mm -hmm. You know, you seem like a nice guy, but if you're in another part of the restaurant where the shooter is and I'm near an exit with my family, I'm leaving you there and I'm getting my family out. <laughs> Right, and I, I, I get sorry, it. Sorry, no, dude. No, no, no offense taken. I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I've been on some details overseas where everybody is carrying a gun. Mm -hmm. That's what's scary to me is if I go, you know, I'm taking care of the people that are my responsibility. Mm-hmm hopefully nobody is going to see me with a gun in my hand and go, Oh, that's a shooter and take me out. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if everybody's pulling a gun, you still have to think your way through this and which is okay on the technical side of it, not the legal side, but on tactics, almost every instructor teaches to scan with your hands up, up at high ready. Mm -hmm. Well, the second rule of firearm safety, never point your weapon at anything you're not willing to be to be destroyed. That's not just for the range that's on the streets or on the battlefield too. Mm. You know, um, the army ranger that was the football player. Oh, um, uh, Tillman, right? Yeah. Pat Tillman. Yeah. He got killed by friendly fire. Mm -hmm. Somebody, um, a guy that, from my company in Panama got paralyzed from an accidental discharge because somebody was loading a machine gun while it was pointed at him. Mm -hmm. So in an active shooter situation, don't be pointing your gun at people. Keep it at low ready. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you know, you point the weapon at the floor in front of you with your finger off the trigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be maybe a half second of reaction time. But what if there's two people with concealed carry and they come across each other? You know, there was uh, about two years ago, there was an active shooter in Colorado. Um, guy ambushed some cops. I think he killed two of them. And there was a civilian with a concealed carry. He shot and killed the suspect, but then responding officers shot him. Hmm. And shootings are very dynamic situations. It's not like a range where the threat is right in front of you, hanging up on the piece of cardboard, you know, you could have thrust to the side behind you. So you got to keep your head on a swivel and look around and don't look like a threat to someone because 
some guy who's never been trained and just got his concealed carry permit and is looking among cops it's called the Wyatt Earp syndrome mm-hmm. you know I'm gonna go save the day I'm gonna be the hero just like that cop who that lieutenant who turned off his camera and ran into the bar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. don't look like a threat right and but if you look at um the pulse nightclub shooting in florida mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize there was a police officer a uniformed officer working security at the door mm-hmm. the shooter ran past him and started opening up the officer engaged this guy almost immediately um so this was a running gunfight through the club and people were trapped in the bathroom unarmed and just had to wait and hope that they didn't get killed Mm. and i think there was one person who pulled bodies on top of himself Mm. now when i was doing diplomatic security public bathrooms were a great holdout spot there's Mm. one door typically there's tile on the walls which can help stop bullets mm-hmm. and everybody has their gun trained on that door the difference between a death trap and a good spot is being armed mm-hmm. if you're not armed all you can do is run and pray right so you know that that's something that maybe we don't go too far into this but i just curious you know there are some people out there i'm sure who are listening to this who are anti-gun you know you see you strike strike me as a second amendment guy um and so so tell me your thoughts you know there's lots of discussions on gun control um and reasonable regulation on guns uh do you have a stance on that that you want to share um i do you know until the 1960s you could buy guns through the mail mm-hmm. you could buy a thompson machine gun through the mail mm-hmm. you know it there was no restrictions on it we didn't have the mass shootings we didn't have a lot of the crime that we have now even with you know the 1930s the dillinger and bonnie and clyde yeah i mean they broke into national guard armories and stole machine guns right but it's never the law-abiding citizen who just freaks out and starts machine gunning people Mm -hmm. and when i was in erbil iraq i was there shortly after they pushed out isis Mm -hmm. most of the women there like the yacht I'm going to mess up their tribal name the yadzi and the kurdish women carried mp5s submachine guns because for them it's lightweight good firepower and if some isis dirtbag wants to try to kill them they've got a reasonable chance of defending themselves mm-hmm. so yeah i don't have a problem with competent people carrying firearms mm-hmm. now as a firearm instructor there are plenty of people i've come across that i go you should never carry a firearm 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, so, so as far as, do you believe, um, that it, it, any regulation would assist with this, with the, these issues of mass shootings and gun violence? Um, or do you think well, it's a mental health issue? What do you think it is? Um, mass shootings, almost always there's a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. There's, we had one here in Portland, well, it's about 11 years ago now that I was actually almost there for it. Um, if I was across the street having a lunch and if my server had been a little quicker, mm-hmm. I was going to be in the store across the street where this mass shooting happened. Wow. Um, yeah, the guy had serious lifelong mental health issues. He stole the guns that he used. But if you if you look at the statistics, um, there's a great book out there by a statistician called More Guns, Less Crime. Hmm. And one thing they found is that the more law-abiding citizens are out there carrying guns, cr- the crime rate drops. There was a case in Florida, um, I think it was in the 90s, where there were a lot of serial rapes going on. And the local sheriff's office, they put out on the news that we are training the women around here to carry guns. And they interviewed, you know, like half a dozen women that are like, yep, I'm carrying a gun. And they made a point of saying, yeah, the sheriff's office training classes are packed. Hmm. The rapists stopped Hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's like, ooh. Yeah, I don't want to get shot. Yeah, yeah, my intended victim might be armed. Yeah. And when you look at gun crime, gun violence in the United States, you have to break down the statistics because of the numbers they put out of like 30, I think it's like 33,000 gun deaths a year in the United States. Most of those are suicides. Mm. It's a gun Mm. death. It's gun violence. Mm. And if you take away gang-related crimes, Mm. um, you know, gang violence, then it's almost non-existent. Mm. When, you know, everyone likes to talk about how dangerous Chicago is. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of their shootings happen in a 20 block area. Hmm. If you don't live in that 20 block area, you're fine. Hmm. But also in the United States, like, yes, in the world, we are number one per capita for gun violence. If you take away Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, and I believe it's Philadelphia we drop down to like 56, 57. Hmm. So it's those heavily populated kind of with urban areas where the, a lot of the problems are going on. And those are, those are also areas with the strictest gun control laws in the country. Interesting. And I've been in countries where, um, they don't require a permit to carry concealed. 
-hmm. So anybody can carry con a concealed firearm. Hmm. There's no permit required. Perfectly safe. Wow. Because there just isn't, you know, the violence, except for organized crime in some of these countries, there just isn't the violence mm. out there. Interesting. So what is it, what else do you think that somebody needs to know uh, that we haven't already discussed about uh, if they're going to be using deadly force in a self-defense claim? Is there anything else that you think that's just imperative that they need to know? They need to know the law better than the defense attorney and better than the prosecutor. They mm -hmm. need to, where they live, they need to know what is a justifiable homicide, what isn't. They have to be able to explain to a grand jury, I pulled my gun because of this. Because just pull, if you're not, if you cause alarm to somebody, even a bystander, someone sees you pull your gun out of your holster because someone's threatening you, well, that caused me alarm. So that's harassment on my part. But there's, the choices of evils doctrine that says you're allowed to break the law to prevent a worse harm. Hmm. But you need to know all the exceptions. You need to know what the self-defense rules are and make sure you, your attorney knows them. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ask your attorney, well, what about, you know, I'm charged with unlawful use of a firearm three counts because I fired three rounds, but that should go away because that's one of the exceptions to that law is if it's a legitimate self-defense. If your lawyer's like, oh, I'll have to look into that. Find another lawyer. That's probably not the right lawyer. Yeah. 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 Interesting. It, well, man, well, well, listen, we've been, we've been going for and, about an hour and a half. I appreciate you giving me wow. the time on that. Um, and, but, yeah. uh, but but listen, um, I would love to have you back, and we can talk more about this. Um, yeah, I'd love to. You know, this is a it's really interesting. I think it's important for people to know. Um, and so, um, a couple of questions I ask everybody. I just want to get to know you a little bit before we before we cut out of here. Um, what would you say? I mean, you got you've obviously had a very colorful life, and we haven't even really talked about your background and the things you did in the military and stuff like that. But what would you say is uh, your biggest uh, success in life? Um, raising my family, raising my kids and my grandkids to be successful adults, mm -hmm. avoiding trouble. Um, mm -hmm. As a medic, I was able to, one of the things I'm really proud of is I was able to save a guy's life who had a lacerated carotid artery oh, wow. and I was able to stop the bleeding and keep it stopped until I passed him off to a trauma surgeon. Wow. That was, and I've talked to other medics that said, yeah, with that kind of wound, I just want to let him go. Wow. Cause I wouldn't have been able 
to stop it. Um, there's also an one of the proudest things I've done is something I can't talk about. Mm. <laughs> it's well, one of those things that uh, in about 2075, it'll be declassified and the public will find out about it. Wow, that's amazing. But my part was very small, but it was still a part. No, oh, that's awesome. So um, what would you say is your biggest failure in life and what did you learn from it? Um, I think one of my biggest failures was when I was young, not standing up for myself when mm -hmm. I was in the right. And, mm -hmm. you know, I let some bosses push me around and even some leadership in the military mm -hmm. that acted as bullies. And I just thought, well, that's what you got to do. This is your boss. You just, you know, no matter how much they make you hate your job, you still have to stick with it. Yeah. And Man. yeah, I should have, you know, 20 year old me, 22 year old me should have gone. No, nah, I ain't putting up with that. So now when you, how old are your kids? Um, my stepkids are in their forties and I've got some grandchildren in their early twenties and one that's 16, almost 17. Oh, wow. Okay. So how does that shape the way you raise them and talk to them? Do you? I tell them when I give them tidbits on advice, I try to tell them what I wish I knew when I was that age. Yeah. I talk to, you know, things like get a Roth IRA, put money away. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so how, to, how to deal with difficult people, Yeah. how to, uh, you know, how to go after your goals. Yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff that what I was told growing up didn't work once I became an adult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things I wish I knew when I was 18, 19, 20 years old that I sometimes some of that stuff I didn't find out till I was in my 40s. Yeah. And I wish somebody had pulled me aside, sat me down and gone, here's the way the world really works. Yeah. I was very yeah. idealistic. Uh, uh -huh. And which that's one of the reasons I'm no longer a deputy is mm -hmm. I was work. I didn't realize that sheriffs are elected officials and mm -hmm. their goal is, well, the sheriff that I work for, his goal was to be reelected. Mm -hmm. Um, and if anything a deputy did could harm his campaign, that deputy got fired. Wow. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. it was a bad place to work. That sheriff ended up getting arrested later. <laughs> so it all worked out in the end. Isn't it isn't it interesting? I've had I haven't had that experience, but it's funny when you have experience where people were giving you a rough time about something. Um and then later on down the road, you look back and you see where they ended up and where you ended up and you go, you know, I wasn't in the wrong there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny how that works. You, you know, I love what you brought up about, 
your kids and, and teaching them. And it's funny, my my son, you know, I have a, I, my kids are still a little bit younger. They're 16, 14, 12, and 10. And my uh, my 16-year-old, you know, he's got a lawyer for a dad, so he's good at arguing, you know. And uh, and he, he uh, I, you know, I, he told me about this, this story about him standing up for himself and uh, uh, in school. And I, I always told him, I was like, I'd rather you be able to do that and have to ratchet it back than the other way around, you know. But, yeah, he went a little too hard. And I was like, okay, so let's ratchet that back and try to try to stand up for yourself in a more respectful way <laughs> than, you know, it's still, still a teacher at your school, you know, you can't, you can't do that. And so it's interesting how you, how, how that, that life experience, cause I was just like him, you know, I had to learn through, I was like, okay, so maybe, maybe uh, going hard like that isn't, you got to pick your battles and be smarter about when you, how you do that. You know what I mean? And, and so, uh, and what you said about money management early, man, that's just something I did not learn in high school, you yeah. know? Yeah, I was of the generation of, I was raised, you get out of school, you get a job, you work there 30 years, you get a pension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I became an adult, that didn't exist anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> and nobody ever sat me down and explained how money works. You know, I got my degree in economics and that was an eye opener. And I've also worked in my main job is as an accountant right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. Quite the diverse background. I guess <laughs> but, so. My goodness. Yeah. Being an expert witness doesn't pay the bills full time. Right. But right. Yeah. Which if it did, then I probably wouldn't be able to turn down cases. Right. But, right. But yeah, but no, it things I learned in the accounting world, it's like nobody taught me this. Yeah. <laughs> On so, Yeah. So, so that's so true. I, it's it's funny I I I tell my kids that all the time because I I was lucky enough, surprisingly, just in the middle of college, flipping through channels, found a book uh, or found a, a guy. He was on Oprah <laughs> and he was just he wrote a book called The Automatic Millionaire. I was like, you know, I think I'm going to pick up that book. And uh, and I read it and it just little things that you don't his his concept was, he said, if you. If you took the money you spend at Starbucks every day and put that into just a basic mutual fund, by the t at twenty five, by the time you're sixty five, you'd have over a million dollars, and uh, and then just learning about compound interest and the time value of money and those types of things, you just you don't get that in in your high school econ yeah. class or even your college econ class, and yeah. so. So, you know, or, or even just understanding compound interest in the terms of credit cards and, and, you know, you know, one job I used to have was for a while was as a financial advisor. Oh, which yeah. Is a sales job. You're trying to right. sell products to people. I didn't realize that going in a little naive, mm -hmm. but one, I was talking with this kid. He was 20 years old. 
and we did an analysis of his spending. You know, he gave us like three, four months of his bank statements. Dude's spending twelve hundred a month on fast food. Yeah, I'm like, dude, and he's like, I don't have the money to. I don't make enough to be able to save anything. I'm like, dude, if you went to the grocery store, you could eat steak every meal, spend about four hundred dollars, right? Put four hundred into savings, and spend four hundred on whatever, right? And he's he's like huh and i showed him it's like dude if you took that four hundred dollars and saved it by the time you're in your mid-50s you're going to have over two million dollars right right it's it's funny you bring that up because that's so true you i remember having a conversation with somebody recently they were having some bad money issues and you sit there and you think, you know, they they think, well, I don't really spend money on that much. You know, I don't I don't buy big ticket items. I'm not going on lavish vacations. And I'm like, right. But you're going to Chipotle every day. You know, you're, yeah. you're going to you're going to Taco Bell every day. And that's ten dollars. And that doesn't seem like much that one time. But when you're doing it five times a week, that's 50 bucks. There's two hundred dollars a month that yep. you're spending just on Chipotle you know, or going to the movies or not that you shouldn't be able to do these things, but yeah. But like I've had soldiers that couldn't pay their bills and you go, you look at their bank statements. Like you just made the last month you spent the equivalent of your car payment at the liquor store. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's this, the, thing I hated about that job the most, the thing that was the, the most depressing was dealing with talking with people that were close to retirement age that had nothing saved. Yeah. And I talked with one guy who was 60 years old going, yeah, when I'm 62, I'd like to retire. Okay. Let's look, look at your 401k. Look at your, he's like, well, I don't have that. Okay. Well, what assets do you have? It's like, well, nothing really. I got my truck and my tools. Didn't have any real estate, didn't uh, have any type of investments or anything. And he said, well, how much do I get from Social Security? We ran the report and it's like, you're going to get about $300 a month because Mm -hmm. according to the Social Security records, you've never held a job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because I worked under the table because I didn't want to pay taxes. Dude, your Social Security is based off of the average income you report over the last 30 years which for you is zero right he's like i can't retire off that no you can't not in the united states you're looking to go to eastern europe you're looking to go to you know the philippines vietnam man yeah that's unfortunate well man we could have a whole podcast just talking about money Jeez. Well, yeah. one, one last one last question before I let you go. You know, one day down the road, you're going to pass away. And uh, and when you do, there's going to be a funeral and someone's going to give your eulogy. What's the one thing that you hope someone would say in your eulogy about you? That I tried to take care of other people. Yeah. That's that awesome. I tried to help people out when they needed it. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and spending this time and talking about this. I think it was important. It was fun. Let's have you back. We'll talk again. Yeah, definitely. Love to. So, 
So for those of you who've, who, uh, who've followed along for the hour and 45 minutes we've been talking, the time flew. It was just easy to, you know, easy conversation to have. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, subscribe. We got a bunch of more fun stuff coming up and, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.